This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, Erickson Immigration Group's partner, Justin Parsons, and lead researcher, Luke Bianco, welcome guests, Executive Director of National Foundation for American Policy, Stuart Anderson. They discuss the context surrounding Stuart's latest Forbes article titled, H-1B visas are scarce as computer job vacancies reach 1.2 million. They address the recent growth trends in the technology and computer sector and H-1B's role in capitalizing, combating false narratives that high-skill immigration means fewer opportunities for U.S. workers, and what the employment landscape looks like in the future without policy changes that reflect our new normal. Enjoy the interview. Well, Stuart, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So this, this conversation is, is going to be more or less centered around your recent article in Forbes, H-1B visas are scarce as computer job vacancies reach 1.2 million. But of course, we'll talk generally about your, your work with the National Foundation for American Policy and uh, your expertise in the area. You know, the center of this article is really, you know, about job trends in the technology and computer sector in the U.S., so what are those recent job trends and, and how does the H-1B visa offer an opportunity to capitalize on that growth? Well, first of all, thanks for, thanks for having me on. This is a great topic. Uh, it's uh, Axios wrote about the research recently, but it's one of these trends that hasn't gotten as much attention uh, as I think it deserves. What we found, we've been tracking this, uh, this for a while, these job vacancies, in fact, uh, going back to 2020, some of the research was cited in, I believe, three different court cases when the Trump administration tried to have emergency regulations or, uh, or a proclamation in one case uh, that claimed because of the unemployment rate in computer occupations that there needed to be these, these rules that blocked visa holders, H-1B visa holders and others from coming into the country. And the argument was that the unemployment rate was so high and people were losing jobs. But what our research focused on was that that really wasn't the case when you looked at these tech specific jobs, that while if you were a restaurant worker or uh, or a hospitality worker in some way, that you were going to have problems because of the in-person contact issue. But amazingly, the technology jobs, that wasn't happening. And we found that the vacancies had 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 actually increased uh, over time during the pandemic as more employers needed to be moving the work uh, online. Uh, there was more remote work, obviously, and more services were getting delivered, uh, you know, online. So you needed more technical personnel. And so actually, as of uh, as of March 2021, the vacancies um, that we've been tracking um, using EMSI, and we, we basically formulated a very specific set of occupations. So they corresponded with computer occupations and actually also corresponded with H-1B visas. Uh, we found that from in March 2021, um, compared to a year earlier, you had already seen an 11% increase from March 2020. And then six months later, when you look in September 2021, there's actually been a 15% increase in job vacancy postings, such that now there's over 1.2 million job vacancy postings just in computer occupations in America. 
Yeah, and you, uh, I think your article does a really good job of addressing that. You know, the H-1B is is not only a, a possible solution to this, but really a necessary solution to this this uh, this level of job vacancy because you know there simply aren't enough skilled domestic workers to fill these positions. Otherwise, is that correct? Well, when you look at the at the graduate school level in the United States, you'll find that uh, over 70% of the full-time graduate students in U.S. universities uh, in electrical engineering and computer and information sciences uh, are foreign nationals. So when companies go online, go on campus to recruit, uh, what they'll find is that most of the graduate students are, uh, are foreign nationals who are going to need a visa. And typically it's an H-1B visa. I know the, the law firm works in this area quite significantly. And, um, but if you, if you step back for people, the bigger picture is that if you're a foreign national and you wanna work long-term in the United States and your employer wants you and an, an employer wants you, um, an H-1B visa is typically the only practical possibility for you. Uh, as, as many people know that the to be sponsored directly for a green card often isn't practical at all because it's gonna take a year or two for processing, even if um, you're not from one of the countries such as India or China, where the wait times can eventually be uh, up to a decade or, or, or really potentially even several decades. And just kind of curious, um, Stuart, you mentioned you know 70% of the graduate students are foreign born. Have you done research or, or any insight in terms of why there aren't more US citizens going to, to graduate school in some of these STEM fields? Is have you Do you have any kind of inkling on that? It's a great question. Um, I mean, there actually has been an increase in computer and information sciences at the master's degree and above level. You, you saw about an 80% increase over the past 20 years, but you saw over like about, I think it's roughly three or 400% increase at the foreign nationals level for computer information sciences. In electrical engineering, you actually haven't seen much of an annual increase over the past 20 years for, for US individuals or US born, which actually even includes lawful permanent residents in the statistics. I think it's a combination of factors. I think for one thing is, there are other opportunities, you know, somewhat easier paths for people to earn a living uh, than going into these, you know, really fairly demanding fields. Uh, I think you could maybe, or you could possibly earn more money in some in some fields. Although these fields earn, uh, they have actually uh, someone in these fields can earn more than almost any other field in the country, um, except for maybe uh, professional athletes and some doctors and, and attorneys in some cases. <laughs> Not all cases. Uh, so these are good fields. Um, I think there there have been attempts to to get more uh, Americans to go and in, go into these fields. But even if more Americans were going into these fields, I think you would still see uh, a large number of, of vacancies because there's such a demand for the labor. Because our, our economy is so much run on these types of individuals being available to do the work. You know, everything we do on a daily basis, all the apps uh, on our phones, the facts, the phones themselves, you know, all these, you know, everything related to e-commerce, e social media, uh, all of that, 
is really driving the demand for labor and it's really uh, in these technical fields and it's really because all of us you know want these services so it's really companies providing the services that both other businesses and consumers want and that's where the demand for labor is coming from your research also points to the fact that you know not only is there a need for you know skilled laborers to fill these positions through the h1b visa but that benefit is actually compounded because once H-1B visa holders are, are at these companies, they serve as job multipliers. And, and that innovation that they trigger creates more jobs, not only for you know, potentially other foreign nationals, but for U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents as well. Exactly. When you look at the, at the data, you'll find that the companies that hire H-1Bs are also hiring uh, more Americans. And the fact that many of these companies have thousands of job openings shows that when they're hiring H-1B visa holders, they're not hiring them instead of U.S. workers. They're hiring them in addition. I mean, it's really interesting when you look at the number of, of H-1Bs available each year, you're looking at 85,000 but according to the government data, only about 56,000 go to computer occupations. So if you're talking about 1.2 million job vacancies in computer occupations against only 56,000 H-1Bs in, in computer occupations, you know, you're looking at really more than 20 times as many vacancies as H-1Bs uh, in computer fields which really tells you that the idea that that foreign nationals are taking jobs or preventing Americans from getting jobs in these fields is, is just not a, a logical conclusion from anyone looking at this. Yeah, so I think one of the things that we've noticed since the beginning of, of COVID, Stuart, is that maybe not so much with USCIS, but we've noticed that the, D, the Department of Labor with um, parental residency applications and folks going through the green card, the employment sponsor green card process. Uh, and we've kind of noticed this across the board, which that there have been kind of an increase of scrutiny on these applications by the Department of Labor by means of audits and, you know, requesting information about, you know, U.S. workers that have applied. And, and there seems to be a perception, at least by folks within the labor, the labor department, that the pandemic has has created a pool of, of uh, you know, U.S. workers in the tech sector who, who need jobs. I'm just kind of curious as to know kind of your thought in terms of what we could, you know, better do to kind of inform these agencies. How do we change the perception that um, the pandemic has, you know, not caused massive unemployment in the tech sector with U.S. workers and almost quite to the opposite to your article? Um, how, how, what, what would you recommend in terms of trying to influence and, and educate Congress about this? Well, you can certainly send them copies of our research and you could send them even to the, uh, you know, to, to some of the websites that show all the job openings. Um, you know, it's really, and then the, and it's ironic for the Department of Labor to have this, uh, this viewpoint, because if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is part of the Department of Labor, they show an extremely low unemployment rate in math and computer occupations, uh, far lower than it was before the pandemic. In other words, it was in computer and math occupations, the unemployment rate was 3% in January, 2020. And in August, 2021, it was 1.5%. Uh, 
in September, the latest latest statistics, it's just a little over 2% now. Some of these, these things fluctuate a little bit from month to month, uh, partly in some cases, even because of the sample size. But overall, the trend is that it's, it's definitely been lower than before the pandemic started. And do you have any guesses in terms of why an agency maybe takes this position? It just maybe is, is it a perception issue with, you know, that there's more unemployment? I, I think it's perception issue. I think that's, I think the Trump administration thought they would be able to get away with the regulations, the emergency rulemaking and the proclamation based on the argument that in general unemployment was higher. You know, when judges looked at some of the more specific data and the arguments that attorneys were making, they found that that, that wasn't a realistic argument to make that you actually have to look at the actual fields uh, and, what's, and what's happening on the, on the ground. Um, I, I think we saw this a little bit during the financial crisis back in 2008, for example. We saw that uh, we, we saw that some of the adjudicators at USCIS started to take it upon themselves to feel that they needed to protect U.S. workers, and you saw things like L visas, which were which which are individuals who are transferred from a company from one part of the company uh, outside the country into the US. So they're actually already working for, for the company. Uh, and yet it was viewed as denying a lot of those applications was somehow going to uh, protect US workers, even though all it was really gonna do was interfere with company operations and make projects slow down or, or not get started in the US. Yeah, just to circle back to the, the H-1B visa as well and kind of how this offers an opportunity to uh, you know, not only meet this, this very high demand, but also having, if anything, a positive impact on, on unemployment in the US. Um, you mentioned in the, the article and, and your research shows that since 2004, the H-1B visa lottery has been exhausted every single year. So it's more than 15 years of you know, 85,000 petitions being granted for, for these H-1B visas, while demand for, for these visas far exceeded that. So in a perfect world, if you look back over the last you know, 15 plus years, how would the U.S. economy and how would these regulations have evolved to, to kind of meet this demand that we're currently seeing? It's a great question. And really, we need to even go back to 1990. In 1990, Congress put a cap of 65,000 uh, on the annual admission of H-1B visas. Almost immediately, that proved to be an insufficient number because of what we talked about earlier, that uh, that was really before there was a World Wide Web, at least that was one that was used by everyone on a daily basis. Uh, it was for, before smartphones, is before 3D printing, is before social media, before e-commerce. I think we could just spend the rest of the broadcast just listing all the innovations <laughs> since 1990. And, and pretty much all those innovations have created more demand for technical labor. And, and as those innovations take hold, they, those in themselves create more demand for technical labor. Um, when you then since that time, uh, Congress they did put a few exemptions in of twenty thousand for graduate students from U.S. universities, and um, if you had a degree from from a U.S. university, um, and but but in general it stayed the same, and such that now we just had a registration period where companies, as you know, can send in registrations 
and it gives a, an idea at least of the demand for H-1Bs. And there are over 300,000 sent in uh, versus the 85,000 in effect that are allowed for companies uh, on an annual basis. So what that really means is when we look at a denial rate, you're looking at more than 70% of the H-1Bs were denied before they even saw an adjudicator, before an adjudicator even had a chance to make a decision on it. And obviously they're going to deny some probably small percentage of those now, uh, although during the Trump administration, they were sometimes uh, denying up to 30% of, of those applications. And generally speaking, what happens to all of those who are, you know, rejected in the lottery or not selected in the lottery? Do they keep trying? Do they go to, you know, other countries and, and fuel other economies? Do they re return to their own country of origin? Uh, it seems like a, a massive loss of potential. I think that companies will try again for them if it's possible, if they still have time, say, on, on optional practical training. But you're correct that a lot of people get lost to other countries. And in fact, the dynamic starts even before the H-1B application. In other words, once it's known that it's difficult to both gain permanent residence or to gain H-1B status in the U.S., that's already informed people on their decisions of whether to come to the United States to go to school in the first place. There is some amazing data that we uncovered that from 2016 to 2018, the number of Indian students uh, who decided to, to study in Canada increased by more than 100% just over that time period. As a result, the number of permanent residents from India in Canada more than doubled in a two or three year period. Really an amazing statistic if you think about it to have that type of movement from one country to another uh, short of you know, a war or refugee uh, situation. At the same time um, in the US, you saw that the number of Indian graduate students we found uh, actually fell by 25% in engineering and computer science. So it, was, it, was, it wasn't just Indians deciding to go to Canada, as many of them were deciding to go to Canada instead of the United States. And Canada has much, much better policies. In fact, I, I testified before the uh, House Judiciary Committee uh, earlier this year on the subject of how much more attractive the Canadian immigration system is, not necessarily the whole system, but at least the parts that allow an international student to, uh, to finish their studies and then be able to work in Canada, often within 12 months, have a chance at getting permanent residence uh, under the Canadian system. Meanwhile, there are people from India in the United States who have been waiting 10, 12, 20 years potentially already for, for their green card. You know, the fact that we've been kind of stuck with this, um, the 65,000 and the 20,000, so the, the 85,000 annual H-1Bs for, well, I guess since the early 2000s, and just kind of the nod movement on the immigration front and even what, even what we're seeing kind of right now with with budget reconciliation and you know not even not even able to get something as simple as you know a um, a visa recapture you know bill included in budget reconciliation or you know what what seems to be a bipartisan 
issue that everyone seems to agree upon in terms of recapturing visa numbers, it, it seems to be a pretty um, non-controversial thing. What do you think is kind of the breaking point? What, what do you think has to happen in the economy with tech companies? What, what do you think that ultimately that is that, that it takes for Congress to act? Well, it was a little disappointing earlier this year when Congress uh, debated a couple of big bills on competing with China that uh, it was almost a typical uh, congressional effort in which they discussed and included almost everything but actual people uh, who would do the innovations. I mean, there was there were some more scholarships for, for U.S. students um, to go into some fields, but be honest with you when i compared the numbers they were talking about it was actually fewer numbers i believe than that get granted in scholarships each year that companies fund through the uh h1b fees for scholarships through the national science foundation so i think it's more likely that congress will do something on green cards and depending on what they do if they're able to do it in a way and possibly there may be some regular regulation that could help with this as well do it in a way so at least international students can have work authorization in the united states while they're waiting for their green card that would alleviate some of the need for people to use h1b visas so it actually end up freeing up numbers in that way for other for other individuals um, and it would also have the benefit of uh, competing better with other countries because the individuals maybe wouldn't see the need to go to Canada and they could stay in the U.S. and study here as well. So, so that's another uh, aspect that could end up helping H-1Bs if you were able to get some type of relief on the green card front, and particularly for, uh, for international students to be able to stay here. And we actually saw some of this with the, the recent Nobel Prize uh, announcement, uh, we just put out new research that showed that three of the four uh, US winners of, of the Nobel Prize in, in medicine, physics, and chemistry this year were immigrants to the United States. And one came in for employment, one came in as an international student, and another one uh, came here as a teenager from fleeing uh, war-torn Lebanon, had actually been kidnapped by militants there, came to the U.S. and uh, was able to start uh, restart his education and eventually uh, was able to uh, receive the Nobel Prize in medicine. So we can see that you know, people use different parts of the immigration system. And I think it's more consistent for people who are pro-immigration on one part, such as maybe refugees or family immigration, to understand that coming in through the employment system is just as valid a response to having a desire to grow up and raise a family in the United States. In your article, you'd mentioned just in terms of the, the job growth in, in computer jobs since the pandemic started, you know, as, as, as you mentioned before, as more companies are going from either a hybrid to a, a more remote, you know, role for their workers, there's, there's kind of more investment in tech and, and there's, therefore it's accelerating computer jobs. What do you think, you know, if, if nothing changes, what do you think the, um, the employment landscape looks like in another 12 to 18 months? Is it, how dire does it become for these companies? Well, I, I think that the vacancies will probably still co 
go up, but I think there'll probably be some sort of ceiling on them. I mean, companies, any employer is not going to just, you know, constantly post vacancy postings uh, and, you know, the equivalent of, of help wanted ads uh, if they know, you know, pretty strongly that they're unlikely to be able to fill them. What employers end up doing in those situations is they cut back on growth, uh, such as including growth in the United States, uh, possibly either abandoned plans that they might have had for some type of expansion, or they do that expansion, but they do it in other countries. Uh, so neither of those are, are, are good for the United States. Uh, as we know that you know, one of the key elements of economic growth is growth in the labor force. And since Americans aren't having that many children, um, you know, the, really the main source of, of labor force growth is immigration. But if Congress isn't going to allow that to continue uh, as, a, as a major source, uh, then we're going to, uh, you know, continue to see slower growth in the economy. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I know there was the article about uh, FedEx, I think, what was it, two weeks ago, about you know, the delays in delivery due to just kind of the, the unavailability of the labor market. And then, so you see it on stuff like that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I was chatting with somebody the other day about this, like we see it in our area in terms of our, our local economy, it's little things like there's like bus driver shortages, or there are, um, like referee shortages for like, you know, youth sports. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to kind of you know, read about the overall big picture, you see it firsthand with, you know, whether it's, you know, impacting, you know, events in your kid's life or um, your packages, your, your, your immigration petitions get delivered, you know, slower because FedEx or UPS doesn't have enough labor. So it's, 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 it's very interesting to kind of see kind of the real life effects right now. Um, in addition well, to kind of what we're hearing from our clients. Well, it's a great point because, there is a lot of this argument was, well, why don't, why can't you just hire U.S. workers to do it? Well, in many cases, U.S. workers are doing other jobs or they're doing something that is more productive for them to do. For example, uh, you know, if you're an attorney, should you cut back on your hours of serving clients uh, so that you can do all the edging and all the landscaping on your lawn? Well, you can do the edging and landscaping in your lawn, but is that really good use of your time? Um, and what about something like roofing? Uh, I mean, how much would you have to pay uh, any of us to get up on a roof and, and, and fix it? Yet there are people who do that and they do it very well. And, you know, getting employment for that, um, get, you know, getting people who are willing to do that and able to do that, it, you know, is great because it allows other people who who it's not their thing <laughs> to get up on, roof, on roofs and fix them uh, to concentrate their on other things. And that's where, you know, education also comes in too. I mean, you want people, you want to encourage people to get a good education. And when they get that education, you want them to use it in, in the fields, um, you know, that they're, you know, chosen to study. So if instead you're saying, well, they should go do this other thing because we're not allowing in enough workers to do these other types of jobs. Well, that makes for a very unproductive uh, economy. Yeah, I think that's a kind of a good note to to wrap on as as we consider the the podcast to be a, a platform for education as well. So I guess what would be kind of your your sending off message, your kind of message to the general public that 
I think generally between either the average citizen or the average American, as well as like these agencies and policymakers have this incorrect belief that more immigration means fewer jobs for Americans. And policies attempting to preserve those jobs actually have the unintended consequence of you know the chilling effect of even having people come to the United States in the first place or actively pushing them out once they're here. So what would be your kind of general message or general you know, educational point as far as what the impact of high skill immigration or just immigration in general has on US jobs? Well, I, th- I think when you have more people who come in, particularly with high skills, but really anyone who fills niches in labor market, uh, they're not only gonna provide useful services, they're gonna expand the economy and they're gonna provide more jobs for other people. I think the biggest myth that affects immigration policy is the idea that there's a fixed number of jobs. Uh, And we know that there's not a fixed number of jobs and people I think intuitively know it if they just think about it a little more uh, from their experiences on a daily basis. For example, when any of us go to a high school or college graduation, if there really were a fixed number of jobs, then why are people celebrating at high school and college ed- and college graduations? Shouldn't it be a uh, instead of a happy occasion? Shouldn't it be a sad occasion? Because these are new people entering labor market, so it means that other people are going to have to lose their jobs because these new people are coming in and starting to work in the labor market. Obviously, that's not the way it works in the real world. And so, just like like when a U.S. citizen uh, graduates from college and goes into the labor market and starts working, that doesn't mean they have to. Someone else has to be on a employed. And the same thing when a company uh, petitions for someone to work on an H-1B or some or some other uh, or some other visa, um, they're not doesn't mean they're taking a job from a U.S. worker. And in fact, there may be more likely based on the economic research, uh, Britta Glennon and others have done that when you're allowing companies to hire workers who are high-skilled foreign nationals, it actually ends up keeping more jobs in the United States. And when Congress has increased the restrictions on H-1B visas, it's actually pushed more jobs for other countries. So I think the bottom line is there's no such things as a fixed number of jobs. And we should be happy when highly educated people want to build their dreams in the United States that's part of American history. People coming here and pursuing the American dream and benefiting all of us in the process. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.